Good morning. In today's headlines, the Supreme Court was asked to block President Biden's student loan forgiveness program on Wednesday. We have Thursday's ruling from Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Steve Bannon is being sentenced today. The former Trump advisor was convicted on two counts of contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the January 6th committee. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis makes a pledge to Floridians. That's after the CDC came to a decision on the immunization schedule for kids yesterday. Five people have been charged in the viral daycare video case. That's where an employee wearing a horror film mask intentionally frightened children. And markets are on the rise and the British pound recovers after British Prime Minister Liz Truss announced her resignation yesterday. Now the race is on for a new Prime Minister. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, and I'm Evelyn Lee. Today's Friday, October 21st. That really is shocking that we can see this happen in daycare. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're just children in the end, but we'll cover that soon also. Now we're turning first to the national scale. The Supreme Court has rejected an emergency challenge to President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Justice Amy Coney Barrett denied a petition from a group of Wisconsin taxpayers on Thursday. Barrett has jurisdiction over the lower court that ruled on the case. The request was denied and prevented from going to the full bench. The petitioners filed their request Wednesday. They urged the court to block the administration's debt relief plan. They felt it was illegal and encroaches on Congress's exclusive spending, spending power. A U.S. district judge previously threw the lawsuit out. He wrote the legal challenge lacked standing because the group could not show that they were personally harmed by the loan relief. An intermediate appeals court rejected a bid to halt the ruling. The Wisconsin group then brought its case to the Supreme Court, where it was turned away. A federal judge in Missouri also dismissed a challenge to the debt relief plan on Thursday from six Republican-led states. He wrote the states failed to establish they had standing and that the court lacks jurisdiction to hear their case. A spokeswoman for Nebraska's attorney general says the states plan to appeal. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon is being sentenced today for defying a subpoena from the January 6th committee. The Justice Department is recommending a six-month prison sentence. Prosecutors are also urging the judge to impose the maximum fine of $200,000. Bannon was convicted on two counts of contempt of Congress in July. He refused to testify or provide documents to the committee. Bannon says the records were protected by executive privilege and that he wouldn't testify until he reached an agreement with former President Trump. In a new court filing yesterday, Bannon said defiance in the face of government wrongdoing is reverence for justice. He pushed back against the Justice Department's recommendation, arguing that six months of incarceration is out of step with recent contempt of Congress convictions. Bannon cited two contempt defendants who, law who just got probation, which is what he is seeking. Bannon was indicted on New York state charges in a separate case last month over allegations that he defrauded donors as part of a private border wall fundraising effort. NTD will have live coverage on our website when Bannon arrives at the court for sentencing at around 8 a.m. Eastern time, so stay tuned. In a unanimous vote, CDC advisors recommended adding COVID-19 vaccines to the immunization schedule for children. Now it's up to each state to decide if they'll mandate it for school. NTD's Jason Perry has a story. 
Before their unanimous vote, the CDC stressed that their recommendations are not requirements. But currently, 31 states have laws that mandate the CDC's immunization schedule for children to go to school. That's according to the Policy Practice and Prevention Research Center at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health. And now, CDC advisors recommend adding COVID-19 vaccines to the schedule. A specific timeline has not been officially adopted by the CDC yet. Dr. Peter McCullough shared his thoughts on NTD News. You know, I see patients with COVID-19 in my practice over the course of the last three years, including uh, giving advice on younger children. The disease is characteristically mild, is easily treated, and so the vaccines are not medically necessary. Uh, they're not clinically indicated, and we don't have any assurances that these are gonna be safe over the short or even longer term. I, as a cardiologist, I have great concerns over myocarditis, a paper by Mansugin and colleagues from Thailand, the first prospective cohort study, showed a rate of 2.3% of damage occurring to the hearts in children ages 13 to 18 who took the COVID-19 vaccine, and that's just with one shot. So I'm greatly concerned uh, that this decision is off the rails. Uh, these uh, vaccines are still experimental, and they shouldn't be brought into the vaccine schedule. McCullough warned that this could erode parents' trust in the vaccine schedule. I spoke with Wayne Rohde, a top expert in the laws and politics of vaccine compensation. He explained how this could play out. I know California and New York are probably happily waiting for it to happen as far as uh, health commissioners. Other states like Florida is going to push back on this. Texas will probably push back on this. Tennessee would push back on this. Um, and unfortunately, it's going to be kind of a red versus blue state um, argument again. Um, but the parents can decide they need to get organized and watch how the process has to lay out in that state. A lot of it's going to be administrative rulemaking, but then you can force the uh, health commissioner at that time to have an open hearing about it and allow public testimony to decide. And then an administrative rule, a judge would then rule whether or not to accept it or not. We reached out to the CDC for comment, and we're still waiting for a response. Jason Perry, NTD News. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday pledged no vaccine mandates for children in Florida schools. This after CDC advisors recommended adding COVID-19 vaccines to the immunization schedule for children in a unanimous vote. As long as I'm around and as long as I'm kicking and screaming, uh, there will be no COVID shot mandates for your kids. That is your decision to make as a parent. Uh, these are our new shots. I get a kick out of when people kind of compare it to MMR and stuff, things that have been around for decades and decades. Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo tweeted yesterday that, thanks to Governor Ron DeSantis, COVID mandates are not allowed in Florida and are not pushed into schools. He also wrote that he continues to recommend against COVID vaccines for healthy kids. And in other news, Georgia's Democratic nominee for governor, Stacey Abrams, is out on the campaign trail. Her statewide tour follows the start of early in-person voting, which began on Monday. She will continue across the state until November 5th. Abrams visited College Park and Columbus yesterday. She spoke with residents about her platform and her plans to invest in education, health care, and housing if elected. Here's Stacey Abrams at Thursday's event in College Park. 
governor of Georgia doesn't seem to understand that you need health care south of I-20. That housing prices are going up, but your wages aren't. That education is how we guarantee our children a stronger future, but that means you've got to invest in every child everywhere in the state of Georgia. We deserve more from our leaders, and we deserve more in our communities, and that's why I'm running for governor, to make sure every one of you gets more. Oprah Winfrey joined Abrams for a virtual campaign event on Thursday. The two discussed issues like education, gun control, and voter enthusiasm. Oprah says she senses a lethargy among voters after the pandemic. Abrams agreed, but said distrust and despair are also factors. Oprah also campaigned for Abrams in her 2018 run for governor. A Massachusetts woman was arrested for attacking officers. And here's a twist. She did it with a swarm of bees. The deputies were trying to serve an eviction notice when they were met with protesters. And soon after, Rory Woods showed up towing beehives. She drove up to the home while deputies were in the process of enforcing the eviction notice. The residence belonged to a man who had been litigating against his removal for years. His legal battle had garnered support of anti-eviction activists, including Woods. When she arrived, she tried to open the lids to unleash the bees. She then smashed the lid of one hive and flipped it off the flatbed. That, of course, agitated the bees. They swarmed the areas, stinging several officers and bystanders. Meanwhile, Woods put on a professional beekeeper suit to protect herself. She then carried a tower of bees to the front door of the home, trying to stop the eviction. At that point, deputies arrested her. That's when we knew, wow, um, she's here to really uh, do more than just um, protest and be heard. She's here actually to harm people. So one of our deputies did, uh, as we were trying to de-escalate the situation, let her know, ma'am, we have people here that are allergic to bees. She said, good, good. Now Woods is facing charges of assault and battery by means of a dangerous weapon and a disorderly conduct charge. She pleaded not guilty and was released without having to post bail. Daycare workers in Mississippi are facing felony child abuse charges. That's after intentionally scaring kids with a scream Halloween mask. The viral video of the daycare has caused outrage. The people that did those acts are no longer with me. They were fired and um, uh, I wasn't here at the time and um, I wasn't aware that they were doing that and I don't condone that and I, I never have. From what we know, videos of two accounts surfaced, one from mid-September and one from October 4th, but both showing a now-fired employee intentionally frightening young children while wearing a mask. The owner said she expected some kids to not show today after the controversial video released. One woman was dropping off her granddaughter this morning when she heard the news for the first time. Learning about it, I would have fired them on the spot. That, that would be my reaction to it. And my employees did something like that, yeah. And she said she believes the daycare owner didn't have anything to do with the inappropriate behavior seen in the Facebook videos. I know of her, I know her enough to know that she wouldn't allow that to go on and know about it, okay? Just a little I know about her, she wouldn't, she wouldn't allow that. The revelation caused some parents to lose trust in Little Blessings and now they say it'll take some work to build it back up in the future. Yeah, it would definitely take security cameras. It would definitely take uh, 
more more leadership, more and more, I guess, better management skills, uh, not leaving immature employees, you know, responsible of these little kids and their lives. Man, these kids looked so upset. That could stay with them for the rest of their lives, really. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and it said that these you know, harming defenseless children like that is one of the worst crimes in the state of Mississippi. If one torches a child, which may be the case here, it can carry a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. Wow. And coming up, the British pound recovers after Prime Minister Liz Truss announced her resignation yesterday. Now the race is on for a new leader of the Conservative Party. And a California city is expected to completely run out of water by December. Now it had to buy water for a price the city could barely afford. But how long will this allotment last? We spoke to the mayor. Find out more in just a minute. Welcome back. The UK's currency recovered recent losses Thursday as UK Prime Minister Liz Truss announced her resignation just six weeks after being appointed. Now the race is on for a new leader of the Conservative Party. Early speculation suggests that some contenders from the previous election will be in the running, as well as the former Prime Minister. Entity's Kostemenas tells us more. Liz Truss's resignation followed a humiliating reversal of almost all of her economic program. One that jolted markets, pushed up living costs for many Brits and enraged her own Conservative Party. Last week, Truss was forced to sack her finance minister and closest political ally Kwasi Kwarteng after their plans for vast unfunded tax cuts crashed the pound and British bonds. The UK's main stock indexes closed higher Thursday as investors reined in their bets on a big Bank of England interest rate hike. European shares rose on the news, as did US stocks, with President Biden shrugging off any economic spillover effects. Truss is the shortest-serving prime minister in British history. Approval ratings for her and the Conservative Party have plummeted, with the UK economy heading for recession and inflation at a 40-year high. New Finance Minister Jeremy Hunt still needs to find tens of billions of pounds in spending cuts before delivering a new budget by the end of October. Conservative MPs are now contending in the race for leadership. Some contenders from the previous election race earlier this year, including Rishi Sunak and Penny Mordaunt, may be running, as well as former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The election of a new Conservative Party leader who will automatically serve as Prime Minister will conclude within a week. Kost MNS, NTD News. Coming back to the U.S., the city of Coalinga in California expected to run out of its water supply by December. Now we have updates. The city was able to purchase water from the open market, but it came to an exorbitant price. I spoke to Darcy Burke. She's the president of the board of the Elsinore Valley Municipal Water District. I want to add at this point, the mayor pro tem himself did not reveal how much the city has spent to buy that water, but Burke estimates the cost would add up to $11 million total. And that's for a community that has over 20% extreme poverty levels, she said. Take a listen to what, she, what else she said. So what you have right now is you have uh, urban areas have been asked to cut back 25%, but we only use 10% of the water, right? So that's only 2.5%, right? That, that's nothing. Agriculture, in many cases, have cut back the most. They got no allocation from our central project or the state water project, and the environment cut back nothing. 
in a real drought, everybody cuts back because you have to. There's just not water. So instead of managing our water waterways, our state water project and our Central Valley project based on the species and when it's happening, we have to find balance. And as the as a precipitation um, schedules change, we used to get water at different times of the year. We need to capture that water when we can capture it, and we need to move it and store it. Right now, we're operating based on an old model. So that water goes right underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, and we don't have the opportunity to capture that water. We also haven't built any storage since the early 70s, and our population has doubled. So we have to start making water infrastructure a priority and the human species a priority. And I also spoke to the mayor pro tempore to find out how long this allotment will last them and what this means for the residents long term. Take a look. We're bringing in the mayor pro tem of Koalinga Ray Singleton for more on the water shortage. Good morning, mayor. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you. Uh, you were able to purchase additional water supply. So first, I'm interested to know, Mayor Singleton, does this mean immediate relief for the residents now? If our purchase went through, then it's a temporary Band-Aid to a bigger wound that will probably get us through hopefully January, and we won't receive our next allotment until end of February, early March. And I haven't checked with uh, our guy, our assistant city manager, Sean, as of yet to see if it went through. But the last word I spoke to him, it was all just needed to be signed and finalized. Because I actually spoke to uh, Darcy Burke right before this, and she said that, um, you know, the purchase came at a very high price also. So, I mean, how, is this going to be financed so that if it goes through and you know you get the allotment that everybody has that access to that water? So the, the finance will be done through the city, which we have our our kind of our savings that we won't have anymore when we make this this purchase because it's gonna be a rather large purchase. And we're gonna hopefully we'll be able to make it until our next allotment. We won't have to do another major purchase between now and then, but that, that, that'll come through the city funds because we've already increased uh, taxes on water to the citizens and we don't want to continue burdening them with the taxes. And so Adam Atkinson, um, just for context, it's he's a councilman in the city. He says Kualinga is being allocated to little water and at the same time, you know, water is being pumped to preserve endangered fish. The levels kept low for flood control. What are your thoughts on that balance between the needs of residents and agriculture would come on top of that and then the environment? I, I agree with Adam. I mean, it's the way we explained it to our citizens when we told them to stop watering is that we're going to choose family over outside watering because the higher need is for a family to use the water for food, for hygiene, as opposed to having it go to your front yard. So you would think it'd be the same ideology for the state to say, you have to take care of the people as opposed to the fish and agriculture. I mean, cause that comes at a high price. When you start losing agriculture, you start losing the people that were here that are moving out because of the, the drought that's here though, when it seems like it's an easy fix. All right, and two questions really quick before we go. Um, you know, what, what, is, what are the measures that are in place right now in the city? And if you look at it long term, what can you do that 
these will not have to be in place again in the future. Okay, uh, what are we doing now? We've already put restrictions on our citizens. No outside front yard watering. We have a moratorium on pools where if you want to have a pool, we would give you a permit, but you have to supply your own water. And that's a crazy cost for them. And we've been in this drought since about 2015, 2016. And we don't really see it going away unless some measures are done up in Sacramento to give us uh, more water because we're also losing agriculture. Our farming is going from farming from agricultural to solar. We see a lot of more solar farms popping up as our trees and our vegetation goes down. Um, and in the long run, unless they build some kind of dams or something to control the water coming in, it's going to continue to get worse before it even thinks about getting better. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mayor Ray Singleton, for today. I really hope that things will get uh, better for you very quickly. So thank you. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Have a great day. And coming up after the break, an organization is trying to help orphans and seniors by bringing them together. It's a relationship that will benefit both groups. We're continuing the program with an organization that wants to build intergenerational homes in developing countries. Its focus is on building relationships between orphans and senior citizens. Let's take a look. I had a real special relationship with my grandparents. Stacy Shuey has come up with the idea of having senior citizens and orphans live in an assisted community together. Three years ago, she started the nonprofit organization Hands for Life, along with her friend Megan Fox. The charity's focus is on building relationships between senior citizens and orphans in developing countries. In America here, we have an aging crisis going on. We can't build assisted living fast enough. We can't find workers, but it is a global crisis. And right now, 60% of the world's elderly live in developing nations. And by 2050, that number is going up to 80%. And in these countries, the government is not attuned to this issue. And so there's no funding, there's no plan in place to care for the elderly. So Hands for Life was born with that um, confirmation and we've begun to combat ageism and take care of our elderly across the globe. The nonprofit currently runs projects in Africa and South America. Before starting her charity, Shui was an executive director for an assisted living facility in Florida, but she felt there was more she could do to help others. I've always had this calling like to do something big with my life, but at, you know, age 50, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm too old now. And so I've always loved the elderly. I lived um, in an intergenerational home with my grandparents. We grew up under one roof. So I've always had a respect and love for the elderly. And um, so I pursued that passion. A few years ago, Hands for Life partnered with a church in the United States that owns property in Honduras. The organization is now leasing the property and is repurposing the buildings. One of the buildings will be a career workshop where the seniors can teach the children a trade such as woodworking, jewelry making, and metalworking. 
Reverend Theodore Anitu, a Nigerian Catholic priest, currently is the executive director of operations of Hands for Life Nigeria. Anitu ministers to lonely seniors and orphaned children. He says that Nigerian society traditionally treats the elderly with reverence. When uh, your parents, when they care for you, then in your own turn, you have to, in, uh, in turn, give back to what you have been given. We need to teach the younger generation that they need to go and change their mindset. Asian cultures, Indian cultures, a lot of cultures used to have um, it right where they revered their elders, but that has changed with times. And so we need to preach that. We need to get to the younger generations and say it is important to pay attention to this. Shui has high hopes for the futures of the orphans in her care. She's even considering sending them to college. Chen Chi Gao, NTD News. What an amazing idea. I know, it is. And you know, I think the idea of bringing the two most vulnerable groups together is really good. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely can help with the loneliness for the elderly, but also, you know, young children that need this role of a family and, you know, family fig or parent figures. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, teaching kids to revere their elderly is really good. That's right. On that note, you know, we want to end the program here. We'd love to hear from you, though, before you go. You can share your thoughts and your story at goodmorning at ntd.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.